Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now, if you haven't already noticed, is Superheroes in Gotham. Has everyone seen that great Batmobile in our Smith Gallery? And you may have also noticed, if you came in from the other direction, um, some trains in one of the cases. This is going to be a huge and beautiful exhibition called Holiday Express Toys and Trains from the Journey Collection, and that will open October 30th. It is spectacular, so I invite you all to please come back, see these exhibitions. If you're not a member or if you don't already have our brochures full of all our exhibitions and the programs to come. Tonight's program, The American Revolution Writings from the Pamphlet Debate, 1764 to 1776, is the President Bill Clinton Lecture in American History. I'd like to thank Bernard Schwartz for making this possible, along with all the other programs he supports. And I'd also like to thank trustees with us tonight, Lon Jacobs, Sid Lapidus, Pat Klingenstein, Ira Unschuld, and Eric Wallach, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them a hand. Thank you. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. And we invite audience members to go to two standing mics in the aisles when we open up for the um, questions. We ask you to do this so everyone in the auditorium can hear you and those listening to our podcasts on our website can hear you as well. And there will be a formal book signing if you wish to have your book signed. They're on sale at, in our museum store on the 77th Street side of the building. We're thrilled to welcome Gordon S. Wood, the Alva O. Way Professor of History, History Emeritus at Brown University to the New York Historical Society. He is the author of many acclaimed books, including the Pulitzer Prize winning The Radicalism of the American Revolution and the Bancroft Prize winning The Creation of the American Republic 1776 to 1787. He is also a frequent, a frequent writer for the New York Times Review of Books. In 2011, Professor Wood was awarded the National Humanities Medal by President Barack Obama. His latest book, The American Revolution, Writings from the Pamphlet Debate, 1764 to 1776, is two volumes and published by the Library of America, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and celebration of the nation's literary heritage. So just want to remind everyone to please turn off your cell phones, any electronic beepers if you have them, and just know that uh, photography is not permitted. And now, please join me in welcoming Gordon Wood. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dale, for that wonderful uh, introduction. It's a great pleasure to be back here at the New York Historical Society, which uh, without doubt is the most vibrant, the most exciting historical society in the country. Um, and when you think 25 years ago it was on death's door, this is just a remarkable recovery. Now, you probably know that um, this year, 2015, marks the 250th anniversary of the Stamp Act. That was the tax levied by the British Parliament on, uh, on the American colonists since 1765. Because of this anniversary, uh, the Library of America asked me to edit two volumes of pamphlets on the debate uh, leading up to the Declaration of Independence. Now, as Dale mentioned, uh, the Library of America is a nonprofit institution dedicated to promoting and publishing the classics of American writings in permanent, permanent editions, and they're well over Many of you know this, well over 270 volumes already. Now, these works are not designed to be scholarly editions, although they usually contain a good deal of scholarship. Uh, they are meant for general readers interested in particular subjects. I especially want to thank tonight Sidney and Ruth Lapidus uh, of New York. Uh, their generosity made possible the publication of these two volumes of pamphlets. And, and they are collectors themselves, and, and Sidney told me tonight that he has, or had, uh, 30 of the 39 pamphlets that are in these two volumes. Now, the Stamp Act 
as I mentioned, was a tax levied by the English Parliament on colonial legal documents, on bonds, deeds, almanacs, newspapers, college diplomas, playing cards, indeed on every form of paper used in the colonies. It was the first time Britain had ever levied this kind of tax on the colonists. Now, from the British point of view, a tax on the colonies made a lot of sense. The government had just fought a seven years war, a war with France, uh, largely on the colonists' behalf. They ousted France from the North American continent. Uh, but the government had borrowed heavily to wage the war and was very deeply in debt. And it seemed only right that the colonists should pay their fair share. The Stamp Act, however, ignited a firestorm of opposition that slept, swept through the colonies with unprecedented force. In each colony, the stamp agents were mobbed and forced to resign. Except briefly in Georgia, none of the colonists ever paid a, a stamp tax. Now, the Stamp Act sparked more than riots and mobs. It precipitated one of the greatest constitutional debates in Western history. This debate between the colonists and Britons and among the Americans themselves involved all of the fundamental issues of politics and government, power, liberty, rights and constitutions, popular consent and representation, differences between statutes and fundamental law, and the problem of sovereignty. Once begun, this decade-long debate escalated through several stages until it climaxed with the American Declaration of Independence. Now, the argument was exhilarating and illuminating. It forced both the British and the colonists to bring to the surface and clarify their different experiences in the empire over the previous century. These experiences of both the British and the colonists had largely been hidden from view over the century and a half. By the time the imperial debate was over, however, Americans not only had clarified their understanding of the limits of public power, but they had prepared the way for their grand experiment in Republican self-government and their experiment in constitution making in 1776. Now this momentous debate was essentially carried on in pamphlets. The Library of America and I ended up with 39 pamphlets. My editor at the Library of America, Brian McCarthy, who is a superb editor, uh, quipped that we now have the 39 steps to independence. <laughs> These pamphlets were the principal social media of the day. They were, the, they were inexpensive booklets ranging in length from 5,000 to 25,000 words and printed on anywhere from 10 pages to 100 pages. These pamphlets were easy and, and cheap to manufacture and were perfect for rapid exchanges of arguments and counterarguments. The pamphlets concerned with the American controversy from both sides of the Atlantic numbered well over a thousand, uh, thousand pamphlets, some of them very brief and inconsequential, but others important and breathtaking. I can't say that I read every one of these thousand pamphlets, but I did read many hundreds. A few of them, those written by, say, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, uh, for example, contain some of the most significant statements about politics ever made. Our edition, we believe, contains the best and most significant of those pamphlets. Ten of the pamphlets in the collection are written by Britons, nearly all of whom were hostile to the, uh, to the American cause. Nine are written by Americans who remained loyal to the crown, and two by early patriots who ended up becoming loyalists. The rest are the works of, of uh, the work of various patriots, ranging from Samuel Hopkins of Rhode Island to Philip Livingston of New York. Now, what I want to do this evening is take you briefly through this momentous debate, momentous because it compelled Americans to give form to their experience in the new world and to clarify for themselves many political and constitutional principles that we still hold dear. Now, once the British government sensed a stirring of colonial opposition to the Stamp Act, a number of British pamphleteers set out to explain and to justify Parliament's taxation of the colonies. The most important of these pamphlets was by Thomas Waitley. He was a sub-minister under the Prime Minister, George Grenville, and the, he was actually, Waitley was actually the person who drafted the Stamp Act. Waitley argued that the colonists, like Englishmen everywhere, were subject to the acts of parliament through a system of what he called virtual representation. I actually use that term, which now is, of course, we use all the time in talking about uh, the, uh, the internet. 
That is to say, he said, for Englishmen, voting was not the criterion of the measure of representation. Waitley said that even though the colonists, like nine-tenths of the people of Britain, he said, did not in fact choose any representatives to the House of Commons, they were, he wrote, undoubtedly a part and an important part of the commons of Great Britain. They are represented in Parliament in the same manner as those inhabitants of Britain who have no voices in elections. And there were lots of people who did not vote in Great Britain. In fact, in 1765, the British electorate made up only a tiny proportion of the nation. Probably only one in six adult males had the right to vote. Still, that was a larger electorate uh, than any place on the continent, which was why Britain prided itself on its House of Commons. There was nothing like it anywhere else in, in Europe. Now, the colonists had, had an even broader electorate for their provincial assemblies, their miniature parliaments, as they often called them. As many as, as two out of three adult white males could vote. Now, certainly, this is not democratic by my modern standards, since slaves and, and women and populist males could not vote. But it was certainly the largest percentage of voters of any nation or any country, any place in the world at that time. Now, in addition to its narrow electorate, Britain's electoral districts were a confusing mixture of sizes and shapes left over from centuries of history, going back to the 13th century. Some of these constituencies were large, with thousands of voters, but others were small and more or less in the hands of a, in the pocket of a single great landowner. Many of the electoral districts had few voters, and some so-called rotten boroughs, like Old Sarum, had no inhabitants at all, but still sent two members to Parliament. The town of Dunwich, which continued to send representatives to the House of Commons, even though it had long, slipped, long ago slipped into the North Sea. <laughs> at the same time, some of England's largest cities, such as Manchester and Birmingham, which had grown suddenly, these are manufacturing centers, had grown suddenly in the mid-18th century and had 50,000 inhabitants. They sent no representatives to the House of Commons. So the, and, and the earlier medieval residence requirements for MPs, members of parliament, had long since fallen away, and members did not have to be residents of the districts they represented. And of course, that's still true today in the House of Commons. The British said that all people, that all the people of Great Britain, including the colonists, were virtually represented because voting or the electoral process was not, not the measure of representation. This virtual representation struck Americans then, and of course, I think to many of us today, as absolutely absurd. It was an obvious violation of one person, one vote that we so value today. But it was not so absurd for most Englishmen. Waitley and the other Britons justified this hodgepodge of representation by claiming that people were represented in England not by the process of election, which was considered incidental to representation, but rather by the mutual interests that members of parliament were presumed to share with all Englishmen for whom they spoke, including those like the colonists who did not actually vote for them. The Americans immediately and strongly rejected these British claims that they were virtually represented in the same way that the non-voters of cities like uh, Manchester and Birmingham were. In the most notable colonial pamphlet written in opposition to the Stamp Act, uh, entitled Considerations on the Propriety of, of Imposing Taxes, was written by Daniel Delaney of Maryland, and he admitted, that the, rele he admitted the relevance of, of virtual representation in England itself, he said. All right, he conceded that, but he denied its applicability to the colonies. America, he said, was a distinct community from England, could not be virtually represented by the agents of another community. But others, and this is more typical, I think, uh, such as John Joachim Zubli, who was a Z-U-B-L-Y, a Swiss-born pastor from Georgia, he pushed beyond Delaney's argument and challenged the very idea of virtual representation itself with what he called, and others called, actual representation. If people were to be properly represented in a legislature, Zubli said, not only did they have to actually vote for the members of the legislature, but they also had to be represented by members whose numbers were more or less proportionate to the size of the population they spoke for. In other words, he had a more or less what we would call a modern American view. What purposes served, asked another famous pamphleteer, James Otis of Massachusetts in 1765, 
by the, what's purpose is served by the continual attempts of Englishmen to justify the lack of American representation in Parliament by citing the examples of Manchester and Birmingham, which returned no members to the House of Commons. If those now so considerable places are not represented, said Otis, they ought to be. Now in the new world, electoral districts were not the products of history that went back uh, hundreds of years. And rather they were recent and regular creations that people, within people's memories in many cases that were related to changes in population. When new towns in Massachusetts were formed, two new representatives were usually sent to the general court. That's the title of their legislature. The same was true in Virginia. When new counties were created in the West, each sent new representatives to the House of Burgesses. In the 1760s, there were actually rioting and, and many rebellions in western counties of several colonies, especially, particularly in the Carolinas, because they hadn't been extended representation in the provincial assembly fast enough. They expected to be represented. They didn't buy into this virtual representation. The expectations of the colonists had become very different, just through this different experience from the British in the mother country. And because of that different uh, experience, most Americans had come to believe in a very different kind of representation from that of the English. Their belief in actual representation made the process of election not incidental, but central, the measure of representation. If you couldn't vote, you weren't represented. This actual representation stressed the closest possible ties between the local electors and their representatives. For Americans, it was only proper that representatives be residents of the locality they spoke for, and of course, that's still true. And the people of the locality had the right to instruct their representatives. Americans thought it only fair that the localities be represented more or less in proportion to their population. Despite its short shortcomings by today's standards, the American practice of actual representation was the fullest and most equal participation of the people in the processes of government that the modern world had ever seen. Now, before we dismiss the British view of virtual representation out of hand, it's very easy to do for us Americans, we need to, we need to try and appreciate some of its merits. Today, in fact, we might welcome some virtual representation in our present-day House of Representatives. <laughs> Edmund Burke, campaigning for election as an MP uh, in 1773, summed up the idea of virtual representation in a classic speech, a famous speech that he gave to his Bristol constituents. He said, Parliament is not a Congress of ambassadors from different and hostile interests, which interests each must maintain as an agent and advocate against other agents and advocates. But he said, Parliament is a deliberative assembly of one nation with one interest, that of the whole, where local purposes, local prejudices, ought not to guide, but only the general good should guide. Uh, now, these are fine sentiments, but difficult to sustain in an electoral system organized by local districts, as ours is. Our House of Representatives is really a Congress of ambassadors from, uh, that Burke warned against. But it might be important to point out that Burke lost that Bristol election. <laughs> but there's another justification for virtual representation. Actual representation, if you recall, makes the process of voting the criterion of representation. If you actually have to vote for the representative to be, uh, to be represented in the legislature. Now, if that's true, does it mean that if the person you didn't vote for wins the election, that you're thereby not represented? What is the justification for majority rule? Why should we accept rule by persons whom we didn't vote for? The concept of virtual representation answers those questions. It, be it believes that the criterion of representation is really based on the mutuality of interest between the representative and the people at large, and thus explains why should we should obey the laws made by representatives whom we actually did not vote for. In other words, it justifies majority rule, which actual representation really doesn't. Now, Benjamin Franklin was very much responsible for the next stage of the debate. In 1766, his testimony before the House of Commons, quickly published as a pamphlet, helped to justify Parliament's repeal of the Stamp Act. To cover its uh, embarrassing retreat, and it was embarrassing for the Parliament to take back one year later after what they had just enacted, Parliament accompanied its repeal 
by passing in the same year, 1766, the Declaratory Act, which asserted its right to legislate for the colonies in all cases whatsoever. In other words, they were saying, look, we're taking back the Stamp Act, but don't get us wrong. We have every right to pass this act and to do anything in all cases whatsoever. Now, this was a robust assertion of what was called parliamentary sovereignty. That is the doctrine that there had to be in every state one final, supreme, indivisible lawmaking authority. Now, this doctrine of sovereignty made famous, made, uh, he didn't create it, but he, he made famous by William Blackstone in his commentaries on the Law of England, published in 1765. That doctrine was the most powerful principle of government in 18th century British political thought. The proper location of sovereignty, in the end, was what broke up the empire. Now, Franklin, in his testimony, had mistakenly, I think, suggested that the colonists would always object to an internal tax, like the stamp tax, because they were not represented in Parliament, he said. But they might not object to an external duty on imports, since they had always recognized the right of Parliament to regulate the trade of the empire. In other words, colonists from the 17th century on had admitted that Parliament had some authority over them. And the Stamp Act Congress recognized that too. We recognized the superiority of Parliament. You just can't tax us. In 1733, Parliament had levied duties on imported foreign molasses. But these were prohibitory duties designed to control the flow of trade, not to raise revenue. Maybe the British government could levy external duties on imports and raise revenue that way, surreptitiously, so to speak. Although few colonists had made much of this distinction that Franklin raised in his testimony between internal and external taxes, the British government grasped at it. In 1767, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Charles Townsend, admitted that he could not see any distinction between internal and external taxes. His distinction, he said, without a difference. It is perfect nonsense. But since Americans were pleased to make that distinction, he said he was willing to indulge them. Consequently, Parliament went on to levy external taxes or duties on colonial imports of lead, glass, paper, and tea, the revenue from which was to be applied to the salaries of royal officials in the colonies. Now, these Townsend duties aroused instant opposition, riots, and, and non-importation agreements, and, and they were stymied from the outset. John Dickinson, who was a wealthy and influential Pennsylvania lawyer, attempted to sort out the limits of Parliament's authority. His letters from a Pennsylvania farmer, the title is interesting because he's not a farmer, but that made him more, you know what we think about farmers, uh, Jefferson thought about farmers. Well, his letters from a Pennsylvania farmer was the most popular pamphlet in the imperial debate until we get to Thomas Paine's Common Sense. Now Dickinson, like nearly all the colonists, conceded that Parliament had the right to regulate America's trade. After all, it had always done so since the Navigation Acts of the 17th century. But, wrote Dickinson, Parliament had no right, no right whatsoever to tax the colonists, and it mattered not whether the taxes were external or internal. But how to distinguish between duties designed to regulate trade and duties designed to raise revenue? The answer, said Dickinson, lay in the colonists' ability to, dis and I'm quoting him here, to discover the intentions of those who rule over us. Suddenly, Americans had turned the imperial debate into an elaborate exercise in the deciphering of British motives. And this at a time when dissembling and deceit were thought to be everywhere in Anglo-American culture. So it's not surprising that Americans became obsessed with conspiracies on the part of the British government to deprive them of their liberties. Now, by 1768, the colonists were still trying to explain their previous experience in the empire, admitting that Parliament had some authority over them. They were willing to concede that, but not the authority to tax. Trying to draw these kinds of distinctions made them look confused. To counter all of the colonists' halting and fumbling efforts to divide parliamentary power, the British offered a simple but powerful argument based on the doctrine of sovereignty, that there had to be in every state one final, supreme, indivisible lawmaking authority. Otherwise, they said, the government would end up with that absurdity of an imperium in imperio, a power within a power. It's quoted over and over again, that phrase, imperium in imperio. Now, a sub-cabinet, another sub-cabinet official, they, they, they did all the work, just like our Senate, Senate aides and, and so on. They, the sub-cabinet official, William Knox, sought in 1769 to clarify the matter for the colonists once and for all. 
The result of his pamphlet, the controversy reviewed, was to bust this debate wide open. It just never recovered from his pamphlet. It had begun with the issue of representation, as I said. After Knox's pamphlet, the issue became sovereignty. Where did sovereignty lie? If the colonies accepted one instance of Parliament's authority, then said Knox, they had to accept all of it. And if, the, if they denied Parliament's authority over the colonies in, one, in any particular, then they must deny it in all instances. And the union between Great Britain and the colonies must be dissolved. There's no alternative, he said. The colonies were either totally under Parliament's authority or they were totally outside it. Now, this is a very important point that's not easily grasped. Now, since tyranny in British history had always come from the crown, good Whigs like Knox, and Whigs are those who favored parliament and, uh, and, and liberty, Tories being those who favored the crown and prerogative power. Good Whigs like Knox uh, found it inconceivable that anyone in his right mind would want to escape from parliament's libertarian protection. Have to keep that in mind. That's important for, for, for the English. After all, Parliament was the august author of the Habeas Corpus Act, Petition of Right of 1628, the Bill of Rights of 1689. The, the Parliament was the historical guardian of the people's property and the eternal bulwark of their liberties against the encroachments of the crown. Tyranny came from the crown, not from Parliament. This is the crucial issue in the debate, the different, different experiences with Parliament. That difference led us Americans off in a very different constitutional direction from the English. For Englishmen, Parliament was the protector of English rights against the crown. It was never, never a threat to liberty, but instead it was the guarantor of liberty. Hence, there was no need to protect themselves against acts of Parliament. The people could not tyrannize themselves. The English Constitution contained lots of written documents, like Magna Carta, which is, by the way, is the 800th anniversary this year of, of Magna Carta. That limited the king. But there are no written documents in English history that limited parliament. Indeed, the documents limiting the king from the act of habeas corpus to the Bill of Rights were all acts of parliament. Statutes, not different in form from other laws, other statutes passed by parliament. England, there was no written constitution. There's no fundamental law that limited Parliament, and today there still isn't. Parliament can do away with habeas corpus by a single statute, which it's done. It did it in Northern Ireland. There's no constitution, there's no Supreme Court to tell them they can't do that. Thus, for Englishmen, a constitution was not a single written document set apart from government and ordinary lawmaking, as it is for us today. For Englishmen, as William Blackstone declared, there could be no distinction between the constitution and the system of laws. In other words, every act of parliament was a part of the Constitution, and all law, both customary and, and statutory, was thus constitutional. Therefore, said William Paley, is a cute summarizer of common 18th century British thought, he's contemporary, the terms constitutional and unconstitutional mean legal and illegal. Now, nothing could be more strikingly different from what we Americans came to believe. Indeed, it was precisely on this distinction between legal and constitutional that the American and English constitutional traditions diverged at the time of the revolution. We had a common tradition until that moment, and we went off in two different directions. During the 1760s and 70s, the colonists came to realize that although acts of parliament, like the Stamp Act of 1765, might be legal, that is made in accord with uh, the acceptable way of making law, such acts could not thereby be automatically considered constitutional. That is in accord with the basic principles of rights and justice that made the English Constitution what it was. It was true that the English Bill of Rights and the Act of Settlement of 1701 were only statutes of Parliament, but surely, surely the colonists insisted they were of a nature more sacred than those which established a turnpike road. Now, under this kind of pressure, the Americans came to believe that the fundamental principles of the English Constitution had to be lifted out of the lawmaking process and the other institutions of government, and set above them. In all free states, said Samuel Adams in 1768, the Constitution is fixed, and as the Supreme Legislature derives its powers and authority from the Constitution, it cannot overleap the bounds of it without destroying its own foundation. 
Thus, in 1776, when Americans came to make their own constitutions for their newly independent states, they inevitably sought to make them fundamental and to write them out in, in documents. Now, this different experience with Parliament helps explain the different response to the acts of Parliament. There were, of course, good Whigs in America who felt, as, as William Knox did, that Parliament's role in English history as the bulwark of English liberty but no, that meant that no one in his right mind would want to be outside of Parliament's authority or outside of the protector of liberty. Go governor Thomas Hutchinson of Massachusetts, the last civilian royal governor of, of the colony, was a good Whig, and like Knox, he could not imagine the colonists wanting to be outside of the authority of Parliament. And he decided, I, I think in his naivete, to lecture his fellow Massachusetts subjects on the doctrine of sovereignty. He assumed that his lecture would convince them how foolish they were in opposing Parliament. In speeches to the Massachusetts General Court that he gave in January 1773, Hutchinson declared that he knew of no line that can be drawn between the supreme authority of Parliament and the total independence of the colonies. It is impossibly said that there should be two independent legislatures in one and the same state, although, for, for although they, they may be but one head, the king, Yet the two legislative bodies will make two governments as distinct as the Kingdom of England and Scotland before the Union of, of, uh, of when, 1603, when James I, the King of Scotland, uh, succeeded to the throne. In other words, it would, as Hutchinson is say, would create, having two legislatures would create an imperium in imperio. And Hutchinson, like Knox, assumed that no Englishman, no good Englishman, no Whig, would want to be out from under Parliament's benign authority as the protector of liberty. Now, faced with this alternative, the Massachusetts House of Representatives, and the, the response is written largely by John Adams, chose what Governor, and it's, this is all published in one of the pamphlets we have in our collection, chose what Governor Hutchinson never imagined it would. It accepted the logic of sovereignty. If there be no such line between the supreme authority of Parliament and the total independence of the colonies, the House declared, the consequence is either that the colonies are the vassals of Parliament or that they are totally independent. As it cannot be supposed to have been the intention of the parties to the compact that we should be reduced to a state of vassalage, the conclusion is that it was their sense that we were thus independent. Hutchinson set it up by giving them this alternative. Since, as Governor Hutchinson had said, two independent legislatures in the same state were impossible, the colonies, I'm giving the House's response, the colonies had to be distinct states from the mother country, united and connected only through the king in one head and common sovereign. Now this marked an extraordinary moment in the history of the debate. By 1774, all of the leading patriot uh, pamphlet writers, James Wilson, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, all of the intellectuals, if, if you want to use that term, uh, had confronted with the same choice. You're either all in or all out. You're either totally under Parliament's authority or totally outside of it, had chosen to cut themselves off completely from Parliament, but not from the British Crown. All these leading colonists set forth a radically new conception of the empire. Each of the 13 colonies they contended was totally independent of Parliament, but each retained an allegiance to the king as the common link in the empire. Now, when Lord North heard about this position, he said, that's a Tory position. That's Toryism. He couldn't believe it. Now, historians have labeled this, this uh, notion of the empire the dominion theory of the empire because it anticipated the nature of the British Empire worked out in the Statute of Westminster of 1931 that created the modern British Commonwealth, establishing the legislative independence of each of the separate uh, dominions. So Canada and uh, Australia, New Zealand have their own legislatures, but they have a common queen, uh, a king or monarch in, in, um, in Queen Elizabeth. So they, it's, the historians have picked that up and used this. This is an anticipation of it by several centuries of 1931. Now, by asserting their independence from the authority of parliament, the colonists had not repudiated the doctrine of sovereignty. And quite the contrary, they had surrendered to it something that many scholars, uh, I found, don't seem to appreciate. Throughout a decade of debate, the colonists had tried over and over to divide legislative authority, saying that parliament could do some things, but it can't do this. It can do that, but not that. 
and they sought desperately to get the British to acknowledge that there had to be separate spheres of authority in the empire. But the British, wedded to this idea of parliamentary sovereignty, could not admit any division of authority. By 1774, most of the patriot pamphleteers had given up. They despaired of trying to divide the indivisible or separate the inseparable and had finally accepted the logic of sovereignty that there had to be in every state, as Blackstone had said, one final supreme lawmaking authority. Two legislatures in the same state, concluded Alexander Hamilton in a common reckoning of 1774, cannot be supposed without falling into that solecism of politics of imperium in imperio. John Adams agreed, two supreme authorities could not exist in the same state, he conceded in 1775, any more than two supreme beings in one universe. Therefore, it was clear, he said, that our provincial legislatures are the only supreme authorities in our colonies. So the Americans had disavowed the legislative authority of parliament, but they had not disavowed the concept of legislative sovereignty. They had simply transplanted it to their miniature provincial parliaments, each of whom, each of which now, had a common head in the king, George III. Now, of course, by surrendering to the logic of sovereignty and adopting this dominion theory, the colonists were not able to account for Parliament's previous and acknowledged regulation of, their, regulation of their trade. Hence, by connecting themselves to the crown alone, they had not offered a very satisfactory explanation of past experience in the empire. This is why James Wilson, uh, who was the ultimate Philadelphia lawyer, was led in 1774 to make his remarkable proposal that we should grant the king prerogative power to regulate trade. That would avoid this awkward problem. How are we going to have trade regulation by the empire if we, if we allow parliament to do it? The best the colonists could do, they didn't accept, no one accepted uh, Wilson's suggestion, the best that the colonists could do was to allow parliament to have power over their external commerce, as the Continental Congress put it awkwardly, I think, awkwardly put it in 1774, from the necessity of the case in regard to the mutual interest of both countries. For that reason, they're going to, we'll allow you to regulate our trade, but we're doing it for the, out of the necessity of the case. Kind of an awkward uh, uh, solution to that problem. Now, because the colonists by 1776 had concluded that they were tied solely to the king, their declaration of independence needed to break only from the British monarch. And it's not something we usually pay attention to when we read the declaration. All of the indictments of British authority in the declaration were levied, leveled solely at the king. George III, you've refused to do this. You, you've, uh, you've forbidden this. You've plundered this. It's George III has done one thing after another. But the declaration never directly mentions parliament. Even though parliament was the, had enacted the Stamp Act, the Towns of Duties, the Coercive Acts, parliament was responsible for almost everything that, that Americans objected to. But when it came to the declaration, King George was the only thing that mattered. The closest the declaration came to suggesting Parliament's participation was when it charged that the king has combined with others, the others, that's the reference to Parliament, to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution. Now, since Jefferson and many members of the uh, Continental Congress were lawyers, they wanted their declaration to be scrupulously legal and in accord with the imperial relationship that they had arrived at by 1774. Now, this is just, I think, one of the constitutional issues that was worked out in the extraordinary pamphlet debate of 1765-1776. Of From this rich imperial debate, Americans thought they had learned how to make their own governments, their own constitutions, how to protect popular rights and liberty, and how to separate and divide the powers and severes of government. But the problem of sovereignty did not go away. 10 years later, 1787-88, when the country was drawing up a new federal constitution, the anti-federalists, the opponents of the new constitution, raised the issue of sovereignty once again. These anti-federalists said that there had to be, in every state, only one final, supreme, indivisible lawmaking authority. Therefore, they said, because of the supremacy clause in the constitution, it was bound to be the federal government that would be the final sovereign body. The states would eventually be reduced to the laying out of roads and measuring the height of fence posts. Sovereignty would belong with the Congress. Now, the defenders of the Constitution did not like this argument because it was embarrassing and it was difficult to handle. The Federalists, that's the name they called themselves, tried to divide power. 
just as the, the cause had tried in the 1760s. They said, no, no, the federal can, government can do a few things uh, outlined in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. The rest would be left to the states. But the Anti-Federalists, just as William Knox and the Governor Hutchinson had earlier, threw the doctrine of sovereignty back in the federal faces of the Federalists. Government power can't be divided, they said. And there must be one final, supreme, indivisible lawmaking authority. And that authority would inevitably end up with the federal government. And this was a powerful, the most powerful argument, along with the Bill of Rights, lack of a Bill of Rights, that the Anti-Federalists mounted. James Wilson, the Philadelphia lawyer, underrated founder, a very smart guy, he found an answer in this, to this issue of consolidation, which is what it was called. Uh, and it was one of the most, that was one of the most powerful arguments, as I say, mounted against the Constitution. Wilson found an answer in, he gave a speech out of doors and then one in the Pennsylvania ratifying uh, convention that, um, that solved the problem, intellectual problem. He gave up trying to divide sovereignty. He says, we're not gonna try to divide it. We're gonna simply relocate it in the people at large. Now he's not saying that all power comes from the people. I mean, all Whigs believe that, even in England. What he's saying is that the final lawmaking authority lies with the people at large, outside of the institutions of government. Sovereignty lies with the people, not in any governmental institutions whatsoever. Now it's a brilliant, brilliant solution. It seems obvious to us today, but it was not so obvious at the time. And when Madison heard about it, James Madison, who is of course the crucial founder, he heard about it, he says, ah, this solves all of our intellectual problems. Now we, we, we see the government as doling out bits, of, sovereignty remains with the people, they dole out bits and pieces to their various agents. Uh, they could be senators, governors, representatives, uh, even, ju even judges were considered to be agents of the people, uh, different agents of the people. And the term houses of representatives, and we're still stuck with it in our states and in our federal government, our awkward reminders that there was an earlier time when there was just one part of the government that was representative. That, that's, that's no longer true. We think of the senators as representative and we think of other, uh, other parts of the government as representative, even though the House of Representatives is stuck with that name anachronistically. Uh, since now, that, that's, a, I, I think, an awkward reminder of a world that, that's been lost, since all institutions of government now become agents or representatives of the people. Now, we have examples of that sovereignty, that final lawmaking authority, uh, exercised in several states, not so much here in the East, but uh, often elsewhere with referendums and ballot initiatives and other means of direct democracy. And Western states like California, Oregon, Colorado have used this much more frequently than any in states in the East. It's a kind of direct democracy that in a sense is this sovereignty of the people, this lawmaking authority being fulfilled. Whether such direct democracy or sovereignty of the people is a good thing in practice or not, I'll leave to your judgment. Thank you. So I'll be happy to take questions, but go to the sides where there are mics, and uh, only one question per person. Uh, and please uh, state your name, and uh, don't, don't, um, don't make speeches, because there are lots of people that might want to have questions. Yes, um, you paint a picture of this incredible level of sophistication in these philosophical political discussions um, being um, you know, discussed in, in that time. And yet, uh, in your writings, some of the pamphlet writers are names that are not commonly known, which prompts my question. The average person, how in tune were they with these very, very sophisticated issues? Most, for all of these pamphlets, except I think for Thomas Paine's Common Sense, were written for, uh, we would say, elites. Uh, people who were college educated, uh, who had, I mean, if you read Don Dickinson's pamphlet, it's loaded with classical references. He's got footnotes, he's got more footnotes than he has text in some cases. He's writing for his fellow lawyers, educated people. So it's a very high level uh, of discussion. Now, the ideas could percolate down and get repeated in newspapers and boil down to a phrase, no taxation without representation. But the sophistication of the arguments, uh, that's uh, designed for 
very well-educated people. Now, when you come to Paine's pamphlet, he really breaks the rules. He has no references in his, in his pamphlet uh, to any of uh, the classics of, of Western culture except the Bible and the Book of Common, English Book of Common Prayer. He assumes his audience, his readership, knows nothing else except those two. So he makes none of these esoteric references to Montesquieu or to Cicero or Aristotle. The others are all displaying their knowledge in, in uh, elite fashion, not pain. So he's a, that's a major rhetorical breakthrough and, and changes everything. He's writing for, for, ta for a tavern crowd. He, he's trying to reach, very self-consciously reach, a wide, wide readership. And so it makes a, a big difference. Uh, uh, how did these? Uh, uh, how did, uh, did the readers of the of the pamphlets uh, differ by colony? In other words, so would Massachusetts have a very large number of participants, and South Carolina have very few? Uh, that's a good question. I, I think obviously readership would have been greater in those colonies which had cities. Uh, once you get, uh, Charleston was a fairly good sized city, but south of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, there, there really isn't any, any city. Williamsburg was a small town and it only had uh, any number of people when they met at the House of Burgesses uh, for, for, for their government. So uh, I think you have much, many more readers uh, in, the, uh, in, in the north, in the cities, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, than you would have in the south. Uh, it's a much more rural, uh, so, and you have fewer, we have some pamphlets from the South, but uh, many of the pamphlet writers are, are uh, I think there's kind of a, um, a bias towards Northern pamphlet writers, but they would be, someone like Dickinson was circulating everywhere among, someone like Jefferson would know and read Dickinson's pamphlet. Uh, he'd be aware of it. So th there's an elite world, uh, small in, by our standards, uh, may not be the ten, the 1%, it may be, uh, I suppose in the South, uh, about 2% of the population was, was college educated or had pretensions to being gentlemen. The distinction between gentlemen and commoners is, is just so significant for them. Uh, it lost, it's lost, we put gentlemen on our restroom doors, it has no risk. <laughs> for them it was actually a legal distinction very, very important uh, distinction. And I would say in the South, probably 2% of the population were considered gentlemen. In the North, it's much larger, maybe five, maybe even as many as 10%. Uh, so those are the people who are reading these pamphlets. Until you get to someone like Payne, he's writing for a middling group. They're, no one talked about the middling group much, they, but they're emerging and they become, of course, by the 19th century, the middle class. Uh, but these are artisans and and people who are, who are not college educated, but, but smart, and, and know how to read and, and uh, write, uh, and they become the readers of, of someone like Payne's pamphlet. Uh, how many of them read um, you know, John Dickinson's pamphlet is, is questionable. Hi there, I'm yes. Bob Crothers, and I'm an amateur New York historian, a member of the Historical Society for many years. Um, one of the footnotes to history involving the Declaration of Independence, um, uh, somewhat infamously, is the fact that New York did not participate in that vote. We, we, we abstained from the vote. In fact, we were under direction from the, the Provincial Congress to vote for, not for independence, and it was structured as independence from King George, to, 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 to match your point. But can, I wonder if you have, any um, counsel or thoughts I, about I, I don't, why, why I, that was uh, why that happened, um, despite simply more loyalists well, in New York? Well, of all of the colonies, uh, I, I have to I have to say uh, New York was probably the, had the, the greatest number of loyalists um, for a number of reasons. But uh, you also had a, a even then a uh, heterogeneity in your population, ethnic mixtures that I, I think um, helped to create a, uh, a fearful, more fearful atmosphere so that people were a little more scared of, of democracy or letting the people rule. So there was a hesitancy, I think, in New York. Now, in the end, of course, New York did. Everyone joined. 
But there were moments in the Continental Congress where they didn't. Now, New York also never, you know, Hamilton uh, uh, had to, um, in the, when the Constitutional Convention of 1787, uh, the two Lansing and Yates walked out as soon as they, they were very much anti-federalists. As soon as they saw what the Virginia plan was, they walk out. And so Hamilton has no quorum. He can never vote. New York, once Lansing and Yates left, and they left fairly soon, New York went through the whole convention without having any vote. Hamilton could speak, and he did make many speeches, but New York never had a vote. Uh, but back in 1775, 76, uh, New York was hesitant for that reason. They really were paralyzed out of, I think, concern that the populace would run wild. And uh, so they hesitated more than any other, uh, any other colony. Yes, my name is Joel Barad. You mentioned, uh, you were talking about actual versus virtual representation. And you mentioned that there were strengths and weaknesses of both. Right. Um, and that we adopted for our uh, Congress uh, actual representation. Yes. I'm wondering if the original way we elected senators was more of a attempt for virtual representation and was that meant to um, alleviate some of the weaknesses of actual representation within the House of Representatives? Uh, I think it was, they, the, having two senators from each state was designed to appease the small states that were worried and it never, occurred to them, I think, that the, uh, that the people at large would elect those senators. They were going to have the state legislature. Now, there is a way of, it's a constitutional way of, of dealing with, with our actual representation. You know, there's no prescription in the Constitution that you have to have districts. We could elect all of our representatives from each state at large. Everyone runs at large. And that, has a, that actually was the case in many states right up until about 1840 or so. In the 1840s, we changed it to these districts. But there are cases when the, um, in some states when they, they, the legislature has locked in, in loggerheads and is unable to divide up the, the congressmen, then because of uh, uh, gerrymandering and so on, that they've been forced to run at large. So we could do that now. So that uh, there are, I don't know, 56 representatives from the state of California, they could all run at large, like the senators run at large. And it would, it would change the nature of, the, of things completely. But uh, it's very unlikely that that will happen. Now, of course, in small states, like Wyoming, the representative does run at large. Uh, he's only one, one congressman. But if you had 56 or so, or New York, I don't know how many you have now, uh, if you ran it large, they could all run at large. That would be constitutional. There's no prohibition against that. That would be, you know, I mean, part of Madison's idea behind the Constitution was to get a better caliber person in the government. And that's why he narrowed the representation um, so that someplace like North Carolina had um, 230 members of its state legislature. He thought the state legislature were running wild. It was an excessive democracy and bad, bad stuff, populism running wild. He thought the Tea Party's bad today. It was bad for him back in, in, in 1780s. So he designed uh, the Constitution to, to kind of elevate and screen out uh, these uh, populists, these uh, excessive Democrats. And, and it would work this way. There are 235 members of the North Carolina legislature but there are only five congressmen given to the first, in the first Congress to, to uh, North Carolina. And Madison assumed that there are probably only five college graduates in the whole state of North Carolina, <laughs> and they'll be the ones who are what he would call liberal, uh, cosmopolitan, not narrow-minded, not parochial. These are the people who will get into the Congress and will have a more enlightened legislature. That was his idea, and uh, that's always a problem. Uh, how do you, how do you, have some designation. We've lost the control of that. I mean, one, the, one of the problems we have with the House of Representatives and with our government in general is that we're, we're destroying the mediating institutions. The parties have lost their clout. 
we've created a, 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 an atomization of, of politics that ends up with everybody running. It's, uh, you talk about Congress of Ambassadors. We, it's an unbelievable atomization of politics. And we've destroyed the mediating institutions which acted as screens and made decisions about who's going to run and who's going to. The parties are so weak. They used to control their, their, uh, their candidates. Now that's over to, gone over to the primaries. And it's very difficult to stop when you say, let the people decide. Well, who's going to stand up against the people? Uh, and that's exactly the problem that the Federalists had. They're trying to, to find ways, structural ways, institutional means of, 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 of stifling the people to some extent because the people can be crazy. <laughs> and we see this happening, and I think this is a, uh, this is a problem. Uh, and we're destroying them. I mean, the, you know, back, I remember Jack Kennedy running for, uh, he only had run in a couple of primaries. They, he had to go run in West Virginia to show uh, Dave Lawrence in Pennsylvania the boss, or, or Daly in, in Chicago, in Illinois, could this Roman Catholic win in a Protestant state? And he did, and so they said, We're, there go, there's our delegate. They could control delegations, and you could have uh, a kind of elite control. Now, we, we just find that, uh, you can't say that, you couldn't get away with that now, and we've destroyed the ability to, to, to choose our candidates properly. And you can see that's happening right, right, especially now in the Republican Party. So um, that's actual representation carried to extreme. It's very difficult to stop it because you're letting the people decide. And who can stop that? I mean, in a democracy, that that trumps everything. Not to use that term. <laughs> I'm bidding no Trump. <laughs> Another question? Oh, over here. Go ahead. Professor Wood, what is it about um, the early colonies that made that environment so much more of a hotbed that provided that kind of spark that was necessary to provide revolution than in the colony than, than in England? I mean, it seems as though England had access to the same kinds of political philosophers. Um, virtual representation seemed just as unfair to them as it did to the colonists. Why why did this happen in the US and why not in England? Well, there were movements in England radical movements to try to change things. It took a long time. One, 1832, they do begin to rationalize their representational system. So there are people in England protesting the corruption and the lack of representation. The Americans are reading these people, and they, they, they respond to these radical Whig writers uh, who are ultra-libertarian uh, by English standards. And that's the literature that we found most um, palatable. Uh, so there's a, I mean, this is a very difficult, uh, read uh, Bernard Balin's Ideological Origins of the, uh, of the Revolution or, um, or his book on uh, Origins of American Politics and you get some sense of this. It's a very complicated issue. Why do Americans and, and the colonists deviate from the English? They deviate almost from the beginning but we don't know that until the issues are raised in this debate. And then suddenly people wake up and say, wow, we don't believe that. We don't believe that kind of representation. They're forced to confront their experience in a way they hadn't been before. That's what debates do. It didn't create the divergence. It exposed the divergence that had existed without anybody thinking about it. And this whole issue of parliament. Englishmen in the 18th century, good Whigs just assumed that Parliament was the protector of their liberty. Who would ever oppose Parliament? They, they didn't realize that the Americans would have a different view. And Americans didn't either, because a lot of them did respect Parliament, because they'd been reared on English history. But when push came to shove, they saw that Parliament was enacting uh, unconstitutional laws. Now, suddenly, how can you have, in England, they couldn't have an unconstitutional law. And you can't today. There's no, there's no Supreme Court in England that says that statute is unconstitutional. So whatever statute is passed, it's constitutional by that fact. The Americans deviate from that. But it took uh, this debate to open their eyes to the, the divergence of experience. But that experience is, is 150, 175 years, in the case of Massachusetts and Virginia, goes back to the early part of the 17th century. And that whole colonial experience that's why a colonial history is important, even though it sounds like a milk painting kind of nostalgia. It's not. It's a very important part of our history. 
and it's much neglected, uh, I, I must confess. Gordon Wood, thank you so much. Thank all of you. I thank all of you for coming. I just want to remind you that Gordon Wood's book, The American Revolution, Writings from the Pamphlet Debate, is a great holiday gift. <laughs> so we'll see you again. Gordon Wood will be out at the book signing table. Our museum store is on the 77th Street side. Thank you all for coming. We love having you with us. We love doing these programs. Good night. Yeah.